Hey, I'm Trevor, and on behalf of myself, Lauren, and Leo, welcome to the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 255. This time around, you are joined by a horror icon who's quite literally done it all. From filmmaker to writer, actor, special effects artist, and more, William Butler. He has lovingly and hilariously chronicled his journey into a fascinating and fun new book called Tawdry Tales and Confessions from Horror's Boy Next Door. Hear about how he went from horror movie fanatic to joining John Beekler's legendary team and making films with Empire Pictures to becoming the only actor in movie history to have been killed by Jason Voorhees, Leatherface, Freddy Krueger, and the zombies from Night of the Living Dead. It's an amazing, unprecedented look behind the scenes of your favorite genre films in a truly unique way that is completely addictive, emotional, and inspiring. We also talk about Disneyland, Bill's new projects, revisiting the world of Stuart Gordon and Lovecraft with the insane Miskatonic U, The Resonator, and the just-released and wonderfully disgusting Baby Oopsie, available on the awesome Full Moon Feature streaming service. Episode 255 with horror royalty William Butler is now playing. This is Billy Butler, and you are listening to another terrifying episode of... The Blue Crew. Ladies and gentlemen, are you ready for the rebirth of the one and only Baby Oopsie? Hi, Mama. My name is Baby Oopsie. It's playtime! Oopsie! <laughs> I told Maker Gator from down the street. Die, die. He died last night. What? <laughs> this ain't real. This ain't real. This ain't real. Oh, I'm real. And if you don't help me, you're next, bitch! <laughs> Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy studio is a legendary filmmaker, actor, director, producer, and writer. His gateway into the industry was informed by his passion for the horror genre and found him on the set of an incredible array of films and surreal moments, like working on Ghoulies 2 and Steven Spielberg's The Color Purple in the same month. He was part of John Beekler's storied effects crew that brought Stuart Gordon's iconic 1980s movie from beyond to life with that he began an illustrious career at charles band's empire pictures in rome and a barrage of influential 80s horror and fantasy pictures that turned millions of kids into horror nerds the world over including creepazoid cellar dweller and more later years being a part of projects including army of darkness and from dust till dawn with the oscar-winning members of knb he has amassed an incredible body of work as an actor with over 32 credits and counting creating unforgettable moments of horror history and making horror history himself being the only actor killed on screen by Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees, and Leatherface, going back to starring roles in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, Friday the 13th Part 7, and Freddy's Nightmares. He took the helm himself, writing and directing 2004's Madhouse, creating the cult classic Ginger Dead Man franchise, Furnace, Demonic Toys, simultaneously nurturing a prolific trajectory, creating award-winning promos and digital shorts for Fox Family and the Disney Channel, earning two Pro Max Awards, 23 tellies, and the Dove Foundation Award for Excellence in Children's Home Video, among many others. Most recently, through his own production companies, brought us the amazing Miskatonic U for Full Moon Pictures streaming platform, an award-winning kids movie called Three Bears 
Bears Christmas, and so much more brain candy on the way. He has lovingly chronicled this truly unbelievable and inspiring journey into the brand new best-selling book, Tawdry Tales and Confessions from Horror's Boy Next Door, based on over 35 years of his journal entries and personal anecdotes, ending up with one of the most compelling stories we've ever experienced. It's packed with never-before-revealed behind-the-scenes photos from the most fun horror flicks ever made and a trip through Hollywood that you would not believe. From camping in his car to being bullied by Prince, holding court with Quentin Tarantino, getting hammered with Lily Munster, and absolutely everything in between, we are honored to welcome the master, William Butler. Yeah! Can we call my mother and have you read that list to her so she'll stop calling me a bum? <laughs> well, dude, dude, thank you so much for taking the time to hang with us today and on yeah. your birthday, man. Happy birthday, Billy. Yes. Thank happy you birthday. very much. It's just one of those days that it it, it, uh, it it's like a movie in itself where it just kind of snuck up on me. I was talking to my friend, my friend Dave Dakota, who's a director, and he's like, hey, don't you have a, a birthday coming up? And I'm like, oh, my God, my birthday's on Friday. It's like, oh, sorry, dude, I'm booked. Like, all of my friends are out of town shooting or... So it's me and the dogs, which I want to apologize in advance for. I can guarantee we'll probably start barking at one point during hey, this conversation. No problem, but, man. We're um, we're honored to have yeah. you spend it with us. <laughs> yes. So uh, I made it officially okay since I'm home alone to uh, eat. I'm on a very strict diet right now since I'm out, you know, hookering this book, <laughs> and uh, I made it okay to eat Reese's peanut butter uh, cup cake for lunch, and that was. Uh, that's about as exciting as it's going to get. Oh yeah, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. Billy, I got to tell yeah. you, man, this book is out of control. And <laughs> yes. once we started, <laughs> we could not put this down. I read the whole thing cover to cover. I know Leo has as well. I can't think of anything ever written like this from the perspective of the journey of a fan that almost blindly followed a passion for horror into such an amazing adventure that had you tumbling into an incredible career that spans so many different facets during a very magical era in uh, genre history, going into the home video market and everything like that. Yeah. What was the energy like for you as a fan to come crashing into at the time that dude, I can't, I can't even tell you, I can't even tell you, you know, again, you know, just like you said, when I was 13, this is, you know, this videotape started coming around and having a VCR came around and, and being such an avid horror fan, uh, it was just such a perfect time for that, that I went from reading Famous Monsters magazine to Fangoria magazine to later when I was a teenager watching videotapes with my friend Johnny Vulich and, and just loving the genre so much and, and not really having, having a lot of interest in many different facets of, of show business, but not really knowing exactly where I fit in and sort of somehow falling into this career just by having chutzpah, I guess. I mean, I think I, I think I learned to know what I was doing by trial and error. And uh, sadly enough, uh, you can probably rent, you know, the first five movies that I acted in and, and go, Oh he, yeah, he definitely did not know how to act in that one. Oh, okay. Now he, he kind of knows how to act in that one. And uh, by the time I got to night of the living dead, I think I knew what I was doing. And I don't know. I just, I, I am as shocked by this book as anybody that reads it. Number one, I, I'm, I'm shocked that there is a book. Number one, like who the fuck is reading a William Butler book? And, 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 and but when I got to the end of it, I was like, well, if anything, I, I think it's a very, a very interesting story. You know, I, 
I, I figured out when I started writing it that the one way to maybe make it good was to just tell the most ugly truth that I have. And, and I think that worked in my favor because I'm pretty proud of it. It's amazing. And was, was there a particular moment that served as the catalyst to go on the path of writing it? Well, you know, I was doing these uh, monologue shows around uh, Los Angeles, uh, one of which is Mo Collins' uh, Mo and Tell show, where I was just reading coldly out of, uh, you know, from my diary without editing anything that I had written. And, and, you know, there's a lot of stories about being in love and, you know, and, and wanting to become an actor. And, you know, I was really fat and then I got skinny and then I got fat again and I was on drugs and I was off drugs. And it was like, I, people liked it. And, and I, I, I started realizing that people were coming back to the shows to hear what, you know, the trajectory of my fucked up life. And um, people start saying you should put it into a book. And I just thought, oh my gosh, I can't put anyone through this that's in the book or put myself through this. And then one day the people at Alamo Draft House saw a show I did in the Valley and they cold called me and said, we want to do a book of your journal and of your journey. And, and I was like, you're crazy. Why would, no one is going to buy this book. And they're like, no, we already know how many people will buy it. We know if you could, if you can sell a couple thousand books, it'll be worth doing it. And I was like, all right. And so they gave me an advance and I started to do it. Well, then COVID came and Alamo Draft House started to collapse and I could feel it collapsing because they stopped, you know, they doing that business thing when they stopped returning my calls and they're being really nice and kind of not giving me, you know, they didn't have any answers because we didn't know if we'd all be dead by the end of the year, frankly. So um, I out of the blue heard from this other company out of the blue. They were like, who's who's printing this book that you're supposedly writing? And I was like, well, it's funny you should mention that, but I, I'm, I'm not sure that there's going to be a, an Alamo draft house much longer. And, uh, and lo and behold, there was not. And when they started to close down, uh, the book division was the first thing that went. Uh, the people at Dark Inc. stepped in. And then the next thing I knew, it was a real book. And I mean, again, I just, I honestly did not think it would be, I didn't think it would turn out as cool as it did. I certainly did not think that it would look I mean, it's weird. I'm looking at it right now. It's like, oh my God, I wrote a book. It's like the weirdest thing, you know, like somebody walks by a coffee table and they, hey, is that you on the cover of that? Although I'm so airbrushed. <laughs> oh, people, come on. You're a beautiful man. Uh, <laughs> Charlie, Brown, Charlie Brown was at my house the other night. He goes, who's that on the cover? I go, yeah, I was like, you have your book. Charlie's book's coming out in about another six months. I was like, yeah, show me the cover of yours, pal, when yours comes out. Mine looks like Dor- Dorian Gray. It's like an oil painting. <laughs> anyway, so uh, so anyhow, um, y- yeah, that's it. Just they took over, and I mean, my gosh, I just I can't even I just can't even tell you how um, happy I am, and how you know you don't make any money really making a book unless it becomes Harry Potter. You don't make very much money, but the fact that um, I think that I had goals. And that, uh, and that I just said, screw it. I'm going to try it. I'm not special, but I'm going to try it. And that I made it on a, on a, a variety of platforms. It feels good to know, uh, when I croak that, uh, someday somebody might read it and go, Oh, okay. This asshole did it. Maybe I can do it too. That's kind of how I feel about it. I can't believe it. Dude, at the end of it, when all was said and done, when you were sitting there and you, you had written it and you got to the last word and you took a look at this, this body of work you made and chronicling this journey, what new perspective did you have being able to kind of step outside of yourself and looking at the journey from beginning to end to where it is now? I mean, it's not ending. It keeps going. 
what perspective yeah. did you gain on that? I'm so ready to write a second book, by the way. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, the one thing that's fantastic, first of all, if, if you have an eyedropper of inclination to write a book, you should do it. doesn't matter if you self-publish. It doesn't matter if a medium-sized publisher or a huge publisher. You should do it because it is the best therapy that money cannot buy. I, 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 I know at the end of it, first of all, the last two chapters, I can't even like read because they're so horrifically painful for me to even think about. But by the time I got past all that stuff, I knew where a lot of my own behaviors had come from of my own issues personally with people and with substance abuse and with eating and with being paranoid and, and being codependent. I mean, I just, and that sounds like I'm a total train wreck and I'm really not, but, but, but those things, those things in general, uh, by the time I got to the end of it, I just was like, Oh, okay. That's why I do that. So it felt really, really good. And, um, like I said, I, the, the last two chapters are really hard for me because if it wasn't for my friend, John, I wouldn't have ever gone on this entire journey at all. I would have never have been brave enough to, to do it. So, uh, it's just, it's, I think it's a, I'm really proud of it. I, I hope that answers your question. I'm trying not to burst, try not to burst into tears, even just like thinking about it. It's pretty, pretty weird for me, actually. How the book opens up too. it really opens up at the, pinnacle of monetary success right <laughs> the, the, yeah. the house yeah. of a thousand whores right yeah. overlooking right. the yeah. hollywood hills as yes. you you were yeah. you were moving out yes right you're moving yeah. out and and starting really over on who knows what this this new journey of finding happiness ha- finding true happiness really is and then restarts at the beginning and takes you on this journey yeah i uh, um i had been doing I had been booking and selling a lot of movie stuff. And then I, I fell into this commercial world and, um, and I was like, my God, I can make so much money doing this. And I just dove in head first, not realizing how much I would absolutely grow to despise it and everyone involved in it. And, and the feeling was mutual. Believe me, <laughs> I was a fucking monster. So I, you know, again, like I think I uh, manifested uh, my way into show business without really knowing what the hell I was doing. I think I also manifested, I, I can tell you, I know I manifested living on in Mulholland Drive and making all this money and having all these, all the accoutrement that goes with having money. But I absolutely manifested my own demise. Now at the time, was I prepared for it? No, I was not. And uh, did I believe that it was really maybe the end of my life? Uh, uh, Absolutely. I did not know what I was going to do next. And uh, I feel so much better now. I just, you know, I just, you know, like it says in the book now, I just kind of, I do things that I want to do. I've already been on the front lines of making gigantic money and being completely unhappy. And so now I'm kind of in the middle, you know, I have my little house in Valley Village now and uh, I'm not on the hill anymore, but I'm also not, you know, putting pins in, in, in voodoo dolls with Mickey Mouse hats on. Sure. That said, what what are you manifesting now? Like, what was the magic in, in that reset for you? What truly makes you happy? Filmmaking on my own, making my writing and directing my own stuff, my own projects. and. Uh, 
and just not, I, I can't, I just don't say yes to every single project like I used to. Now, if I'm not into it and I don't, I know that if there's an ounce of poison in it, I do my best to like get rid of the person or I excuse myself from it. So what I'm doing now is I do these uh, films, these independent films, kids movies, horror films, family movies, comedies, and I just do them on my own. They're moderately budget. I get my own money. I, I, I've learned how to get my own cash to do it. And then occasionally I'll sell a screenplay to a larger company, but I usually don't have anything to do with it. So I'm in the safe zone now. I'm in a very safe zone. I, the great thing about doing smaller projects is, is, is that I do, I end up doing, you know, four and five projects a year, which is amazing as opposed to the way I used to do it, which is one every four years, you know, that I, I would, I would do some corporate entertainment movie and have a, a protocol of like 45 people that, you know, that we're, we had to have a meeting about the color of somebody's fingernail polish, you know? Yeah. But we don't do that anymore. So it's fun. I do it for, I do it for the fun. And, uh, you know, I think I'm, I'm probably, uh, at the end of my journey in living in LA, I think I've learned, you know, I, I'm sure as you guys have learned, I don't need to leave the house really anymore. You don't really go to meetings in person anymore. A lot of this is done through zoom. And, uh, so I think I'm going to probably, get a farm somewhere like where I grew up with some, I'm going to have a, some rescue dogs and, and, and produce film and, and write. I love writing. Like if I learned anything from the book, I learned that I'm a decent writer of books. So I would really like to try to continue to do that. You know, it's, it's interesting too, because at the time, you know, at the time that we're speaking and, and coming to, I guess the end of, of the worst part of the pandemic, hopefully it has caused that career reset with a lot of people. A lot of people are going through this time right now where they're in the middle of deciding maybe to take a leap into a new career. They're, they've got a new perspective. You having gone through that scary part of being in the position of not knowing what's going to come next. What kind of advice can you give to someone who's at that precipice of being in that space of limitless possibilities, but not knowing where to go is there a piece of advice? Is there, is there, you know, do, how can you tell people that things do get better no matter what? Well, they do get better if you decide to get better. The main thing that I think I did for myself is I just had to say, what is it that makes you happy? Forget about, we are, I already lived on Mulholland Drive and I was not any happier there than I was here. You know, I'll tell you a funny thing that my friend Vigo Mortensen told me when he first started getting really famous and I was like, Oh my God, you must be so happy. You like have all this fucking Lord of the Rings money and you're on slot machines for God's sake. You know, <laughs> we see dog food together. And I was like, having all this money must make you so happy. And he's like, it's just like all like calm. And he's like, the only thing that having a lot of money gives you is a bigger house to be unhappy. in. if you're unhappy, <laughs> right? So like, Oh man. And that is the honest to God true. So what I did was I asked myself, what is it that makes me happy? Forget about, forget about what I think I need to have, how I need to look, how I need, what makes me happy? Well, what makes me happy is writing. And they, if you're a writer, they can never take writing away from you ever. They can take acting away from you because you were the boy next door in a hundred projects and you're no longer a boy next door. They can take that away from me. And, you know, if I wanted to, and I very well, very well may, you know, let it all go and go back to acting. That'd be on my own terms, but you got to find your own, you got to find your own thing. And I just think that I was like, I love writing and I love directing and I'm, I'm going to do that. And, 
and I made it happen. And anyone can make anything happen. Seriously, if I could, if I can worm my way into the business, anyone can really, you know. Yeah, early on in your book, you tell a very fascinating story of your strict upbringing in your home and where many things were, or your interests were frowned upon, aside from reading uh, famous Monsters magazines and such. How did the fascination with horror movies manifest? Like, what was the one movie that sucked you in? Okay, so two things. My mom, who was, uh, you know, sort of, as you could see in the book, was abused, beat up by my father and sort of shit on by my father. He was never there. So the kids and my mom, we became friends. We became like a group of like, when one of us wasn't getting our head pounded into the drywall, we would all kind of do things together. My mother was, my mother was 17 when she had me. So she was basically like almost our own age. She was only 17. So we hung out together and my mother would let us stay up. We would wait for my dad to come home. My mother would let us stay up and watch Channel 26, uh, which was a small channel in out of Hanford, no, out of Bakersfield, that showed old, scary films. And uh, I just started developing a, a, a liking for it. One of my, well, still to this day, my favorite horror film is a film called The Innocents. And uh, that is with uh, Deborah Kerr. It's an old black and white film, um, sort of inspired by Taming of the Shrew, where this nanny gets this job in this old house where these twins are living there. And it's very, you don't know if the house is haunted. You don't know if the twins are evil or if she's crazy. And as it turns out, it may be all three, but it's one of my favorite things. And I, I got really interested in that. And when my mother could see me asking her to let me read famous monsters, she bought me, uh, first she bought me Edgar Allan Poe and I was obsessed with it. It's all I wanted to read. And then she bought me HB Lovecraft and that, and then it just, from then on, I just, you know, I was a weird kid to begin with. I liked all that sort of stuff. I liked puppets. I liked sculpting. I mean, I was the easiest Chris kid you could buy Christmas presents for because if you gave me construction paper and scissors and paste, I would be completely happy. I, I didn't need all the other stuff that the cool kids had. I, I wanted like stuff to create. So that's, that's where I, I first, I first got and it, it never left me. And then when I met John Bullich, uh, and we became, you know, we were obsessed with Tom Savini and George Romero. And it's just, it's just so bizarre that we both ended up working for him. I, I just, I can't even, I remember the day I had lunch with George Romero when I got cast in Night of the Living Dead. And I remember he was talking and I just was <laughs> staring at him like, wow, I, I'm at LB's, LB's big boy with George fucking Romero. I remember watching him eat his French fries and like, dude, you're George Romero, man. It was cool. That's so amazing. Well, That's awesome. and, and in the book, I mean, it talks about that, right? Yeah. Johnny goes off to Hollywood and starts working yeah, with yes. fucking Tom Savini. You guys grow yeah, up yeah. and watching Dawn of the Dead and everything. So like, yeah. we would call him. We would, <laughs> we would, we would watch the same videotape over and over, over again, which I'm sure everyone did. And then, and then John sent Savini some Polaroids. And then I went over there one day and he's talking on the phone. I'm like, who's that? He's like, Tom Savini. I'm like, what? It's like we worship that guy. I still am shocked that we all ended up in front of him. It, it, it was a different time, though. You know, it was you could actually do stuff like that. I don't know that people can do what we did. You know, we would just we would. One time, Mike Deacon and I picked up the phone and called Dick Smith one time out of the blue, and he answered the phone. It was like, you know, Dick Smith, the makeup artist, is famous for The Exorcist, and 
we got into an argument at Beekler's over something. I wish I could remember what. And then I was like, that's not how you do that. He's like, yes, it is. I'm like, call Dick Smith and ask him. He's like, all right, I will. So we called Dick Smith, like trying to be funny. And the Dick Smith's like, hello. We're like, oh, uh, uh, Mr. Smith. Uh, and then we asked this dumb question and he answered it. Still to this day, we laugh about it. The law of attraction, man. The law of attraction, right? That's yes. so awesome. Oh, I know. It's so dorky, but it is so real. It, it is so, so real. I would, wouldn't dare walk you through the house of all of the obvious clues of uh, laws of attraction in my home. But uh, let's just say I'm a vision board boy. So <laughs> so Vulich is out, out in Hollywood, right? He starts working on like Day of the Dead, Friday the 13th, part fucking four. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Savini. Yeah. And one of the first places that you go to to find work is Disneyland. And right. your, your love for Disney is something very close to you. That you carry yes. to this very day and almost absolutely you pull, pulled toward you. You pulled it towards you like a tractor beam talking about law of attraction. What started that love affair with you and all things Disney? You know, it's it's dorky as hell, but I have to say I, you know, and yes, I did. I, I not only manifested that one, I took a battling ram and beat the fucking door <laughs> down until they until they hired me. But uh, uh, and that goes for the channel, that goes for the studio, all of it. And the like, theme no, no, park, no, you, yeah. Yeah, no, 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 you don't understand. I have to work here. I mean, I still to this day call or email Eric Covert, who I who I sometimes work for at, at Disney Channel, and say, all right, what's the story with Jungle Book? I mean, is this a Jungle Cruise? Does it suck? Is it good? What's going on? <laughs> what, what's up with the new Mary Poppins movie? But um, yes, uh, the reason, the, the the absolutely embarrassing reason why I believe that I was drawn to all that was, you know, I, and I don't want to make this sound pitiful, but I think it was the um, the whole escape of all those stories that were popular when I was a kid are all about somebody that's you know beaten down and something good happens for i think i was i think it made me believe like well those stories came from somewhere they they didn't just make them up those those stories must have happened and i just thought well if 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 that can happen to those characters then maybe it can happen to me too and it did actually and i think that's what i'm just so happy to go to the park so happy to watch any live action or or animated project and uh and that's really why and it's embarrassing to say but that i think is what 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 drew me to and obviously the quality of what they do and you know it's a pain in the ass the protocol is is a huge pain in the ass it's just sometimes yet you, you hit your head against the wall but in when it's all said and done and i watch the project that i've done for them and somebody has been bitching about the eyebrows on a creature. And I'm like, oh, my God. And then I see it. I'm like, oh, they were right. You know, like they're all there for a reason. And it looks the way it does for a reason. They have a protocol. So I guess I belonged there. I was never an Imagineer, though. That was one thing I always wanted to be. But I, I'm not I don't think I'm smart enough to be. Well, never say never, man. Never say so never. A lot, a, lot of cra- a lot of crashing roller coasters. I think if I, if I had to <laughs> hey, I'm curious, what what do you what feeling do you get as a creative person walking through that theme park and, and going on those rides? Does it do anything to your creative brain? It's weird. It's weird when you work there, you look at it. Well, first of all, when you work there, the one thing that's really cool is you really do see that people are there 99.9% of them just have a good time. There's no one grouchy at your work when you're there. The people that are working there are nice. The people that are going there are nice. And 
and it's it, it's great and it's so different though i'm sure you've been backstage it's uh it's very it's very different backstage than it is in the actual park itself very different but the park itself is just i just it's just flawless it's just it's a it's a it's a it's a, it's a very great feeling i haven't been there yet and i'm not i don't think i'm going there anytime soon i just saw on the news it's like they're at full capacity again. Yeah, Matt, and a lot of people not wearing masks anymore yeah. as well already, yeah, which still, yeah. you know, it's, it's, right now it still freaks me out a little bit, man. Well, the rules in LA are so strange because I go to the post office and I knew better to bring my mask and everybody's kind of looking at each other. You know, everybody in LA is so triggered so easily that you don't want to piss anyone off. So I always have the mask. And then I go, there's no like four people in the post office. I, I see everyone's looking at me, so I put it on. But then I see on TV that everyone's like Staples Center is open tomorrow night at full capacity. Or maybe it's tonight even. Yeah. For a ball, a ball game. It's really strange. Like, I think that we're going to it's going to be a rough month of people. There's going to all the people that, that, that don't like wearing the mask are going to come out of the closet and start, you know, carrying carrying each other. Like, put your mask on. Right. It's okay. Yeah. Who but, knows? You know, I, I, I just directed two, epi- two episodes of this horror thing in uh in ohio and nobody wears masks and oh my gosh i can't even tell you it was heaven heaven to not be you know i'm the guy that has had one filthy mask floating around you know the dogs carry it off and i'm like oh fuck where's my mask and it's got like shoe marks on it and like guacamole on it and so uh yeah it was so nice in ohio to not have to not have to do that very exciting very exciting time in ohio (laughs) now now, not to harp not to harp on disney but i got to hear about the first time you went on the haunted mansion oh my gosh well you know the thing is you guys i'm old enough that they built the haunted mansion and it stood there for many years before it was even open so i was one of those freaks that um was counting the days until we could we could get there so i just loved it i love everything about that thing i just i just can't believe that it's so flawlessly designed and and has held up all these years and even the little small things although i hate nightmare before christmas i don't know if you're a a person that likes it you like it i i I have a a love and hate whenever it happens Um, i wish that it was back to the (laughs) the they they need to just do it for a month and get it over with i don't need that fluorescent cardboard bullshit just fucking put it in fantasy land make it make it its own ride don't screw with my haunt don't put madame leota as a christmas ornament that is very dumb and uh so i'm very i'm very uh passionate about my haunted mansion i like it old school i like an original recipe i wasn't even really on board with the replacement of the uh the bride but now she's kind of grown grown on me a little bit i kind of like it i do not like at disneyland when they think putting flat screen TVs in a in an in, in, in an attraction is an upgrade, you know, it's like the Finding Nemo, you know, submarine flat screen TV voyage, where it's like <laughs> you get into a submarine, and it's like, wait a minute, that's a TV screen, that's a TV screen, that's a TV screen. No, no, no. I want rubber faded and chipped rubber flounder or whatever that Nemo flying around. I don't want any TV sets. I don't like that. In fact, I shouldn't even say this because I did, <laughs> did the commercial for the, for the video, for the video game. 
But I don't like that Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway has so much TV screens in it. I don't like that. I like it. I like it very 2D. I mean, is it 2D? Yeah, 2D. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I hear yeah. you, man. I hear you, man. Yeah, part of that part of that uh, appeal to me for Disneyland, too, is it's just what we were talking about, that vintage aesthetic and how it's remained pretty much how it is unchanged for so many years. Those are the those are the attractions that I like the most because there is a magic to it. The fact that they were designed and still to this day managed to entertain people young and old without changing from when they were built. Like Pirates of the Caribbean, for instance. My God, oh, yeah. what I love so, so much good. about that attraction in, in you know, Haunted Mansion is that to, ex- to try and explain those rides to someone who's never experienced them is like the ramblings of a crazy person. It doesn't sound like it's possible. I mean, and yet still nobody has done, nobody has outdone it yet. Nobody. I can't think of anything. So I have a question for you. I'm going to ask you a question because you're, you're obviously a hardcore Disneyland person. I asked my friend this the other day, if you had to hit one attraction with a wrecking ball to make room for something else at Disneyland, what would it be? Oh, Disneyland or California adventure? I'd hit the whole California <laughs> yeah, with a That's ball. exactly what I would do. <laughs> I'm still sad about Tower of Terror, which was the, by far the coolest thing that California Adventure what ever did. What about all this bullshit with this uh, Marvel? Oh, Academy. the campus and everything. Oh, my yeah, God. it looks like a it looks like a you know like a shopping mall in Romania. Like what the hell? And what's up with that? What's up with that? Like. Oh yeah, this is the this is the stage where the marble people fight, and it's on the roof, and you can see the top of their head running back and forth. Like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> Lower the stage. Yeah. See, I should I should have been an Imagineer. I'm <laughs> okay, wrecking oh, ball, man. wrecking ball. I'd say uh, auto uh, autotopia, whatever the hell that is, and <laughs> okay, and anything that's that. ever been in the in the submarine voyage space, which is now I think this Nemo, right? Yeah, and I think they should probably definitely they got to get rid of that Nemo or do it right. But it's so pretty, you know. You don't want to cement over that, right? You don't really see them putting like a skating rink over the top of it. It's it's so pretty, but definitely Autopia's got to go. Or I got to say, and I worked on a lot of the stuff in Toontown. Uh, Toontown would get it. Bad. Wow, well, it looks yeah, like they're expanding yeah. it or something. The last I've been there, yeah. like nobody's yeah, over they there. Are. Oh. You know why? Because they're putting a runaway railway there. Okay. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah with the new yeah. the new Mickey and Minnie kind of. And that does look fun. It does look it does look really fun. It's just a lot of video screens, but it seems like they figured out how to um, configure. I don't know if it's projections. Maybe it's projections that I'm. But they figured a way to configure them so that they're on the walls and stuff. But anyway, there it see. The Boo Crew will be right back. This is not an advertisement for a new movie. This is a warning. If you are squeamish, if you have nightmares, if you have a weak heart, before you experience Reanimator, think very carefully. H.P. Lovecraft's classic tale of horror, Reanimator. It will scare you to pieces. This motion picture contains scenes of horror that may be considered too intense for anyone under the age of 18. Remember, you've been warned. Speaking of the genius of Walt Disney and that imaginative thinking, one guy that you've worked with many, many years and continue to to this day, who's got that spirit of imagination is Charles Band. Yes. 
Talk about meeting him and just the being around that energy. Oh my gosh. I love that guy so much. First of all, there's nobody on the planet that is like him. No one. And I met him when I was about 18 years old and I'm 50. Am I 58 today or am I 57? I think I'm 58 today. As much as I lie, I think I'm 58. Um, I don't even really think about it uh, because it's a horrifying, daunting thought. But anyway, so I've known him a really long time. And, uh, you know, Charlie was a very interesting guy with a really weird sort of Beatles haircut in the 80s. And he's just always wide eyed and optimistic. And when he had Empire Pictures, you literally could be a production assistant or a slime jockey and you could ask to go to his office and talk to him and he'd have you come in. There was absolutely an open door policy in regards to ideas, grievances, things that you think are working, things that you need to, he, he, he was that way. And he, he still is that way. And uh, I've just known him for a really long time. And I, I went from, you know, being a slime jockey uh, for him, working on Eliminators in Spain to working on From Beyond. And so all of the movies in the 80s uh, living, I lived in Rome for five years working for him. And then at a certain point I told him, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't want to, I want to start acting. And he's like, all right, I'll make you a deal. You can do, do both and I'll give you your side card. And I just was like, are you kidding me? And I like, he gave me all these acting. I mean, he's just never him and John Beekler. And then it was just like, um, you know, Years later, when he found out I started directing, he's like, hey, come direct a movie for me. It's, you know, you're not going to have the same budget that Madhouse had, but, you know, and I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to go there because it's a real, it's a schlep, you know, doing these movies for, for no money on all fronts. But the one thing that is amazing that I cannot stop myself is he literally says, what do you want to do? And then you go, uh, I want to do a spinoff TV series that's inspired by uh, From Beyond. Okay, do it. Write it. And if it's good, I'll let you do it. Okay. Then I did it and it turned out good. All right, do another one. Okay. And now I'm, I'm writing like six more. I mean, it's that's like, amazing. He, he does. He, he only says, what is your idea? And it's got to be like two or three sentences. Okay. Can you do it for this amount of money and this amount of time? I don't know. I can try. And then we, we try to do it. And you know, with me, it's typically $20,000 more than I say I can do it, but it's only $20,000 and other, you know, he makes it up. And, uh, and then he just doesn't, does not say no to you. You'll go, here's what I want to do. I want to make a monster. I'm gonna, I'll help it. It'll be, you know, I'll bring a lot of production value to, and he just will let you do whatever you want. It's incredible, man. For, for a creative, it's, it's why I haven't left there because there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of downside to, to applying yourself to projects like this. For one, there's no money. You make, you make just enough to live on. They kind of know your, these films, they know your breaking point. And then, you know, you want to always be union and sometimes you can't be, but I, I always seem to find a way to somehow make it union. I don't know how, but, uh, uh, and then once you have union performers, then everything, it, it all comes together. And it's just, it's just working for him is the best, best, best place. If you're a creative what do you think it is about him that ignites him to encourage people creatively in that way? Have you ever had that conversation with him? Like, what, you know, what do you love about getting ideas from the person mopping the floor, turning him into a director or, you know what I mean? Have you, you know, had that? I think, the, I think the thing about him is the thing that he loves is if you have the ability to do five different things at once. Like for instance, I'm mostly a creative person 
but I'm also not above, you know, writing something, directing something. I can produce it. I can help. I'll help cast it. If I had to, I'd go buy the freaking groceries. Like he likes people that can multitask and he likes to keep those people that are not afraid. You know, I art direct. I, you know, if I had to, I, when I did a film for him in Italy, I designed the wardrobe. We went and got the wardrobe. I think it's that if he understands that you have a true understand of filmmaking and a, and a passion for filmmaking, that he keeps you close to him, that you're able to be self-sufficient. For instance, this, um, this last thing that we did, I mean, I really lucked out you guys on this. Uh, he asked me to do this baby oopsie thing as part of my deal from the, for the six episodes of Miskatonic U. And I did not want to do it. I had done uh, demonic toys two in Italy. I totally fucked it up. I was horrible. It just stupid. And it was hard to film. And, Filming puppets is like the hardest. Oh, thing I can't on even imagine, planet. man. And you've done it, it so, many times. So, yeah. And on many of the things that I did for Charlie's in the eighties that had involved puppets, we'd film for a month and we'd have a month to do the puppets on Charlie band things, hook, line and sinker. You get seven days, seven days to film 68 pages Whoa. and do puppets. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. And so, <laughs> and so you better know what the hell you're doing. So I said, no, 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 no. And he's like, you can do, dude, I don't care. Make it into like friggin' eraser head. I don't, you can make it as freaky and crazy as you want. I was like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll do this, but I'm going to make it weird. And, and, and so the first thing I did was I, I hired Libby Higgins, who's very well known for playing the Carla McRib lady that I don't know if you've seen that there's like this viral video of this woman who says she was going to McDonald's and she throat punched somebody over a McRib sandwich. It has like millions of hit, and she's very, very funny. And I said, okay, I want her to be the lead in the project. And he's like, all right, boy, you sure are going out on a limb. And I said, yeah. And I want this other kid, this kid, Justin, who's on, on TikTok. He's famous for dancing and he's this odd looking incredibly positive, joyously interesting person. And I put him as a second lead. But the best part is what the, what the listeners will enjoy is that my friend, John Criswell is the head mechanic for Henson. And I knew John, I worked with John on all of the, from beyond, excuse me, all of the empire pictures movies, including ghoulies and from beyond and robo jocks and everything. John makes the mechanics for the inside of the puppets. And I went to him and I said, I probably have about a thousand dollars. Would my baby oopsie head fit inside one of the uh, old uh, dark crystal uh, elf heads? And he's like, no, but I think we could smush it around. So what I ended up with was him and I and uh, Greg Leitner, the uh, makeup artist, this incredibly sophisticated puppet of the new baby oopsie, which I'm, I'm so proud of. That that has is, is like nothing that Charlie Band has ever seen, and we we just did it because we were in love with it, and it kept getting better, and better, and it's just like between Libby and the script is weird, and the uh, you know the puppet is incredible. Uh, it actually turned out good. I, I I really can't wait for you to see it. I know that sounds ridiculous because I absolutely hate that franchise, but um, <laughs> but it, it, it's very uh, it's very very Twilight Zone. It's you know it's about this woman who's very beat up in life and hated by a lot of people and picked on by a lot of people who uh, is a is a doll hoarder and her house is filled with like thousands of dolls. 
And uh, she gets this box one day with the remnants of this stupid baby oopsie puppet and she puts it back together and then something happens and it comes to life and starts killing all the people that are mean to her. And at first she likes it to the point where she's dropping the doll off. And, uh, but then sadly the doll runs out of people that don't like her and then, all right, well, I'll kill the people that you do like. So it becomes this war between this 500 pound, you know, beat down housewife and, uh, and this satanic puppet. And I have to say, I've never laughed so hard. We just shot some inserts, uh, in my guest room, which is still the no walls way. are still, co- still covered in vomit, uh, where the doll, <laughs> the doll, the doll like pees on people, throws up on people, stabs people, you know. So we were doing some really amazing uh, vomit trajectory shots in my guest room uh, two days ago. So it's it's really good. It's 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 good. It's going to air on. Uh, I owe I owe this to Charlie for hiring me. It's going to air on Amazon Prime in. Uh, probably I would say early August they're saying late July but in movie language that means early August and it'll be on that full moon features app which I don't know if you guys know anything about it but that thing is incredible yeah dude I subscribe man it's insane that's what I watch Miskatonic on yeah all those great weird did you watch that stupid movie they put up the other night that thing called crazy night no I haven't seen it yet you got to watch. I mean, if you like Euro trash kind of movies where it's like it's it's, for the, the people watching or listening uh, the platform is like new horror films, old like Spanish horror films, Italian horror. Films, and then it's also this contingency of like these sexy, sexy in quotation, erotic movies from like the seventies where it's like the Swedish, you know, swinging cheerleaders or like, you know, uh, stewardess Academy or whatever. Right, all those like sexploitation them, movies and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. One of them, my favorite one is a stupid movie called crazy nights. And it was filmed, I think like in, italy and there's just some stupid lady with like feathered hair and it's all voiceover because none of them spoke english where she's like you know when you're as sexy as i am you like to go out for a crazy night so tonight i think i'm gonna go out to make love and do some disco dancing and then it'll just be like and it'll just be like 20 20 minutes of just like not really that good looking like kind of naked lady with feathered hair and like a scarf you know, and this like porno, like Euro trash, like a bunch of compound, like the damn damn. And then, well, that that club was great, but now I I, I remember when I was in Paris, and then they'll be doing this. It's just it's jaw droppingly entertaining. Oh, there's also a really great Jane Jane Mansfield documentary. Like, I just love that channel. I really not just because I work for it. I'm so happy because I have literally watched every single thing on Netflix. There's nothing I haven't watched. You know, during the pandemic. So Charlie is really the old mom and pop video store that we all used to go to and be like, what the fuck is that? You know, (laughs) that's exactly what it is. And one of those (laughs) things, one of those things is a fucking jewel that you produced just Mm -hmm. recently. And that's the Miskatonic you tell people like what? Okay. God, this is crazy. Like (laughs) going back to the world of from beyond and now you know, on the cusp of reanimator, if you watch Miskatonic you and this gleeful, exploration of practical puppetry and effects that you've cultivated and these actors and it's incredibly horny and fun and fucking (laughs) rad so talk a bit about just tell people the experience that they're missing out on if they have not seen miskatonic you yet whereabouts in the timeline that this enters in in the from beyond world all i will say is that i will happily hang my head in shame on some of these demonic toys too that i did this is on the other end of the spectrum you know i worked many times for 
for Stuart Gordon. Stuart Gordon was a very good friend of mine and a mentor. And uh, I absolutely loved working on From Beyond. I loved Barbara Crampton and Jeffrey Combs. And when Charlie said, you know, what do you want to do that is an homage to the old Empire days? I said, we have to do a series about Miskatonic U. And it's like, we, we're not going to duplicate from beyond because we can't because Stuart Gordon's a, a genius, but let's be inspired by the art direction, by the sexuality and certainly by the rubber monsters. And let me try to go to town. And I don't n have any idea how I got it so right, but I will proudly say that I did get it right. It's a perfect, perfect measure of like boobs, monsters, the most, you know, I don't know who these people are that are going to Miskatonic. You, you have to be a runway model to go there, you know? Uh, it's like the most gorgeous, fuckable human beings on the planet that are all geniuses. And, uh, and then uh, and it just started, you know, I just, oh, it's so dorky to say, but I, you know, if you watch the making of documentary, it really felt like Stuart was there, you know, Mike Deke, my friend who worked on From Beyond, he was there helping us. And, uh, and we just felt like, you know, I think I feel like Stuart would be behind this. And I think that's why I just dove in. And I think that's why it worked. And I am so happy that we ended the last shot of episode two with Herbert West uh, coming to campus. Cause now on the next six, six episodes, he's a major part of the storyline. And uh, I can't wait for everyone to see what's going on with these kids. There's more students, there's more teachers. We got Amanda Wiss. See, this is this is a difference when you can go union. We got Amanda Wiss from Nightmare on Elm Street. We got Michael Pere. And we certainly got a better caliber of actor that we would normally get. Just not just out of their experience, not for anything else. These are very seasoned actors that are in, you know, in this project. I just I love it. Me and Greg Leitner, we sat in my backyard with a ton of uh foam and glue and did designs and like, let's make as many monsters as we can in two months. And that's exactly what we did. And they're still in my garage. In fact, if, if any of you are having a haunted house, I'd be happy to loan you a giant monster. <laughs> you cannot walk through the garage without running into a monster. <laughs> that's but, amazing. Uh, yeah. So we're, I'm, I'm in the middle of writing the stories right now. And then uh, I I'm supposed to start filming in August. And in movie language, that probably means September. You know how shit goes. Oh, but, uh, we're so stoked! And the only place I'm to see so it stoked. is on that on that full moon app and on the Amazon on the Amazon yeah. Prime kind of offshoot, right? Yeah, you can go. To, yeah, you can watch on Amazon Prime, and you can watch on the Full Moon Features app. It is really good. You will not be disappointed. And here's the good thing: I'll give you the quick hard sell on this Full Moon Features thing, which is great. The great thing about subscribing to that Full Moon Features app is that he gives you. I can't remember if it's. I think it's like. You can pick like 10 to 15 like DVDs, which are all six or seven dollars a piece. So it's basically like it's 50 bucks a year to, to, to have the channel, but you're getting like $120 worth of DVDs. It's, yeah. it's, it's a pretty amazing. It's pretty much like getting for free. And he's smart enough that every year when he knows it's about to expire to have some other present like like the year before the DVDs, he gave away like a giant hoodie like you could have a hoodie. So it's you're just really kind of supporting the machine. Cause certainly I can tell you as a person who knows the numbers, the platform doesn't make enough money for him to make money off of it. It costs like five grand a month to even have the platform. So all we're doing as a horror community is really keeping the platform alive, which is great. Now, hopefully in 10 years, there'll be 25,000 subscribers, but right now we're coasting at 5,000, five to 8,000, I think. And we're really, really happy about that. That's really, it just, it, 
it supports independent film more than anything. What went into that spectacular? My favorite monster in that one is that kind of like penis looking octopus lady thing. What went into the creation of that? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, we wanted to, and she is a major part of the next six episodes. Oh, awesome. Uh, her and her penises. <laughs> uh, you know, we just wanted to make, we wanted to, I think we wanted to project a little bit of confusion. And we, and I think we certainly did that. It was like, she's super hot with these great breasts. And then yet she has penises for hair. I mean, it's kind of a like, do I or don't I situation. And, you know, the world is the world is changing. I think everyone's becoming a little more open-minded as a result of M- Mrs. Penis Head. Um, and that's, that's funny that you should say that because that, that is kind of what everyone calls. Oh, you got to bring, bring her back. It's like, yeah, yeah, we have. But yeah, she's, uh, she's very busy in the next, uh, <laughs> next few episodes. Boy, these, you know, you, it's, it's not bad enough. You got you to get naked on a TV show, but you're wearing a hat full of penises. Like, <laughs> you know? That said, that's, that said, in all the, all the monster making <laughs> creature building you've done over the years, is there one in particular you're particularly proud of? Well, I will say I helped build the monster in Terror Vision. Uh, oh, wow. All, all 8,000 pounds of it. And then um, that I helped, I helped on a lot of things. I would say the television monster was pretty funny because it was mostly just us dumping two part polyfoam onto this. It weighed so much. And I would have to say also the giant chicken shrimp from, uh, from, from beyond that giant chicken. Thing yeah, you did that thing. Wow. wow. Well, I, I was one of many people that worked on it, but it's a good story. A good story about that monster. It was about, uh, 12 feet long and it was on like a gimbal where it could go rah, 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 and kind of peck in, you know, and it, the crate that, uh, that it was packed in was as big as this room and filled with peanuts, pop stuffing peanuts. And then one time we were in the, in Beekler's shop in Italy and we see our driver, a Manueli. Uh, oh, I'm so, oh, I'm so sorry to give you this news. I have horrible news to tell you. It's like, what happened? What's wrong? He's like, Oh, they were unloading the crate with the giant chicken strip at the airport. I'm like, yeah. And they're like, she fell off the forklift. Oh, and no. the, box, the box opened and the chicken is laying on the runway at Da Vinci. <laughs> what? It's a, it, it looks like it looked like she snowed. It looked like she snowed. There's peanuts everywhere. So it's like Chris, well, of course, I found, oh, you know. Being the sissy of the group, I found, oh, look, I'm working over here on this. So, yeah. You guys have you guys have fun with the chicken monster. <laughs> and uh, so Chris, I think Criswell and uh, Tom Flouts and, and Mike Deek, they went and somehow strapped that fucking giant chicken monster onto the hood of a car and drove down the Italian freeway, which in hindsight for the Italians, it's not it's not really that shocking. They have seen worse, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, we we got it back. But yeah, there's actually a, I want to say there's a picture of me with that thing in the book, but maybe I, maybe it didn't make it. But there's a good picture of me. The other thing that happened when we we finally got it, we we sealed it. It was it was meticulously airbrushed. I want to say by Steve Wang, but uh, some very good airbrush artist came and painted it. And when we got to Rome, Biko was like, "It's not shiny enough. Paint it with this sealer that we got in Italy. We'd never used before." And, and it was beautiful. And we painted it with a sealer. And the next morning we came back to work and it had turned white. Oh. The sealer dried white. So oh, we had to shit. repaint repaint the whole thing. It was crazy. Oh my God. And you oh, were yeah. on set for one of the coolest, I got to say, one of the coolest werewolf costumes I've ever seen. And that was in Cellar Dweller with the, the werewolf with a pentacle 
on his chest. And before reading yeah. the book, I had no idea that you were a part of that, a part of that thing. And it was, yeah, you yeah. said that the costume was made of yak fur. Yeah. It's probably this. That was probably the stinkiest werewolf costume in movie history. <laughs> or Mike it was me. Our artist, fine, fine artist, amazing artist, Chet Czar, uh, and Mike Deke. I think we were the only ones there. And I, me and Chet Czar would dress Mike in the, actually there must've been more because I think there was effects in it. The three of us would dress Mike in that fucking thing. It was a thousand degrees. Beekler poured it up in polyfoam that was like this thick, like just, just not the way you normally do it. I think it was because Empire was on its way out and Charlie was making the budget smaller. So we made these, it was probably 400 degrees in the suit. It smelled so bad. You could smell him from a mile away. Craziness. So crazy. Cellar dweller. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was such a great movie fun. too. Wow. Don Mancini fucking wrote it. Jeffrey Combs. You can't go wrong, dude. It's amazing. Yeah. Every, everybody is in that movie too. Like there's just so many people, the lady from dynasty and Dr. Ben Casey's in it. Yvonne DiCarlo's in yeah, it. Yvonne fucking DiCarlo. Brian Robbins. Brian Robbins is in it. The big director. He was from uh, some stupid TV show at the time. He was really nice. Nice guy. And then Deborah Ferentino, this beautiful TV actress. It was, it was great. We had a lot of fun. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah everyone listening, go track down Cellar Dweller. It's out there. Leo, you had a yeah, question, man. Yeah. yeah. Having worked with all these great actors and directors and special effects artists and friends over the years in the horror genre, what is your most favorite memory of being on set? Oh, I would probably have to say hmm my favorite memory of being on set i would probably have to say when i when i when i finally got cast in night of the living dead i finally knew how to act i finally felt comfortable with the way i looked felt comfortable with who i was and i and i got cast in that movie based on the fact that i knew what i was doing as opposed to you know he won't fuck it up or i look like you know some boy you know, the fit, the guy with the brown hair, the fit, the part, I actually, I contributed to the film. And I just remember seeing Savini and Romero in that graveyard scene in the opening scene. And I just, you know, I just feeling really happy that I was accepted into the system based on my talents and not because I was painting slime on hand puppets or, you know, you know, I, I lucked out in the business because I, I kind of jumped from lily pad to lily pad until I got onto the lily pad that I wanted to be on. And at first, when I was hired, it wasn't because I was the greatest actor. It was because I was also willing to put my hand up a puppet's ass. <laughs> and by the time that I, by the time I, I, I got a Night Living Dead and Chainsaw Massacre and, and things after that, um, I knew what I was doing. And I think that was like, oh, okay. I, okay. I did figure this out. You know, I, I felt really satisfied. I remember when I got the call, you know, uh, I was with Vigo when he did uh, Young Guns 2. I was looking out for his little son, who's now a 23 year old man while Vigo was filming. And then, and then Bullich called me and said, Hey, Savini wants you to audition for Night of Living Dead. And this is back during, there's no electronics, snail mail. So they mail me the script and I read the script and I like the script and they, they want you to put, be, a, be put on tape. And Vigo went and bought a camera. You know, Vigo Mortensen directed my, my audition scene. Like he wasn't famous at the time, but it seems funny to me now in hindsight that Vigo directed my screen test for, uh, for Night of the Living That's Dead. wild. So, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> So that was, I think, my happiest moment. Uh, there's other days where I can tell you uh, I wasn't on set, but again, living in 
living in Hancock Park with Vigo as my roommate and getting the phone call that I got, had gotten into Chainsaw Massacre without knowing anybody. That made me feel really good because I cannot tell you uh, when I auditioned for it how, you know, when you're on these auditions around, especially in the 80s and 90s, I mean, you see everyone. You see the same guys over and over. You go into the thing and like, ah, fuck. You know, I'd see Matt LeBlanc there. I would see... Um, I forget the Irish guy who died, who was on Roseanne. I'd see, I'd see David Arquette every single time. And I'd go into the lobby and I'd see David Arquette in the lobby. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm plan, I'm plan C. If David doesn't do it for the money, then I'm plan C. You know, I was the, like the triple poor man's Michael J. Fox at the time. So I, by the time that I got in Chainsaw Massacre, there they saw like 800 people. And I just felt really, I felt really, really happy that I had, by proxy of fucking up so many times that I had learned how to act and learn how to carry myself. And, and that was really good. That was really an amazing time. In Chainsaw Massacre three, when you're strong, mm-hmm. you're strung upside down. How much of that is you and how much of that ends up being a, a dummy? Cause it was like Nicotero was working on that right at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And we had already been friends before that. I'm still friends. I just mailed him. How embarrassing is it that he wrote the forward in my book and then um, he took a picture holding someone else's book. And then I'm all like, oh, you got it. Oh, that's great. He's like, yeah, no, that's someone else's. You forgot to mail me one. So I just <laughs> mailed, I mailed, I mailed the executive producer of, of Walking Dead, his book that he helped me write, uh, you know, a year ago. So he just not got, it. but uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, I, I would say it's about 70% me, the rest of it's a dummy. And uh, there's all these weird rules about hanging upside down. Like you can only hang upside down for so long. And oh, it was just, I was not having, I, I was having overall, overall having a good day, but the guys in the scene that were, they were all sort of swinging Dick and like, I'm, I'm a bigger method actor than you. And uh, you know, they weren't saying that, but they were, they were really smacking me around and stuff. And so I just was like, fuck, like I, that, that happens. That happened a lot. Actually, you got to really be ready to like use that pain. You know, when they drug me in with the bear trap on my ankle, that was a real bear trap it was really on my ankle. And I just was like thinking when they were putting it on my ankles, like, Oh, all this time I thought they were rubber bear traps that they put. No, no, put a real bear trap on your ankle. Look better. And then Vigo would just not give a fuck and just drag me across the room. Like, that part of it was, uh, I'm not whining. I guess it sounds like I am, but, uh, but, uh, you know, I'm a pussy actor. I'm not really uh, a guy with a bear trap on his foot, you know? Right. Right. (laughs) 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 Speaking of that though, Leo, you had a follow-up question that goes right into that, man. Yeah. Jesus, great stories in the book, thinking how thrilled you were to be covered in blood and such, and how you know how blessed you were to be there. Now, was there ever a time where a stunt didn't go right and and real blood was spilled on set? Whoa, many times, many times. Not not just for uh, not just for me, not just for me. Uh, I can think of uh, well, uh, yeah, yes, yes, many times, most times. It's funny thing about the stuntmen are they they kind of think it's funny when that happens. Um, for instance, I'll tell you uh, when I was in Friday the Thirteenth Seven. There's a shot towards the end of the film where the girl who's a psychic is making the house collapse and Kane dressed as Jason Voorhees comes running out onto the porch and she uses her powers and the, and the porch falls down on him. Well, what was supposed to happen was 
it was just supposed to be explosions that exploded, but they were very ambitious on their, on this movie with their explosions. And when they did it, it fell and knocked him down and it was a real porch. It wasn't the foam porch. It, he was really knocked down, knocked out like by this thing. And, you know, Kane is just Kane. He shook it off, laughed it off. I mean, so many times things like that happened with Kane where, uh, where he was hit. And then just recently, I probably should not be saying this because I'm sure he'd rather forget about it, but you know, Kane, uh, maybe I should shut up. I'm going to say it. Uh, so you know, Kane has this fake machete that he takes pictures with people, like when they come to the horror conventions to take pictures. And out of a fucking movie, somehow some kid brought a real machete in and his got mixed up with the real machete. Oh, he shit. Cut, he cut someone. He took a picture holding it and the kid was like, ah! ah! And he's like, what? Oh, shit. Sorry about that. Well, I remember infamously always hearing like he used to do the, he does a chokehold, right? Whenever you go to the conventions, right? He's a madman, dude. Yeah. Well, he doesn't do, he told me he doesn't do that anymore. He's like, I don't do it anymore. Like, somebody got pissed off. And that's so funny. I love that. I love that guy. I've known him for so long. He's such a great, hilarious person that you just love being around. He just is nonstop laughs. He's hilarious. And, uh, oh, my God. You know, I, I've known him. I knew him when we worked on prison. I met him. The makeup that I applied on him in prison was the one that inspired the Jason makeup. No, I didn't sculpt it. I didn't color it. I glued it on. Yeah, I remember so, that. Uh, I, I certainly don't want to take credit for that. But um, he was there. And then, sadly, me, Kane... And Anthony Ferrante, who did Sharknado, we were with Beekler on the last day before Beekler passed away. I just thought it was very um, strange that my journey with Kane <clears throat> started with Beaky and uh, and there Beaky was moving on to the great effects lab in the sky. Love that guy. Loved him so much. Oh, yeah. No, his work was phenomenal. And you were a big part of that team throughout that whole journey. That's uh, that's truly incredible, man. And a lot of Kane Hodder, great, insane Kane Hodder stories in Bill's book that you will not believe. The urine yeah. one stands out of my mind. Mother. I don't want to spoil it because you've got to read the fucking book. To hear yeah, what's... Son of a bitch. <laughs> now I want to jump. I just want to jump. I know God, we've been talking to you. I feel like we've been keeping you yeah. forever. I just a couple more questions. If you don't mind, you have some, a little bit more well, time. Of all right. All right. Well, of course I'm, I'm a blabber mouth. All right. So well, I got to jump in. Got to jump into Madhouse, right? <laughs> One of the first films that you got a chance to write and direct Jordan Ladd, Josh Leonard from the Blair Witch Project. Project Lance fucking Henriksen, man. And that kicks off. That movie starts with, I mean, talk about ambitious. Uh, fucking like car chasing a person right out the top. This awesome, I don't know how you did that shot, like out the window of the uh, asylum, down right into the action right at the beginning. It's an incredible, incredible fucking shot. And then you descend at one point into the basement, right, where they keep the craziest of the crazies and it is like going into a haunted house and there is the craziest shit happening behind these doors including a, a nymphomaniac <laughs> doing yes. her thing there's people yes. spitting on the windows and banging on things how did you yeah. cre- talk about just creating that 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 scene that that whole downstairs underground fucking torture well 
Well, I will tell you, as you probably know from reading the book, that I have had moments in my life of uh, mild amounts of substance abuse. And um, I think that a lot of those things in that um, in that basement came from some of the things that, that I was thinking were uh, and I, not at that time. I, by that time, I had moved beyond all that. But um, I remembered a lot of the things that I was scared of while I was high and coming down. And a lot of that came from a lot of that came from uh, coming down off of drugs and being convinced that people were looking in the windows. Mm -hmm. and a lot of it, a lot of that stuff just came from my own mental illness, <laughs> including, including, uh, you know, the reason why uh, the lead ends up being mentally ill. I was just a lot of my own personal shit. I told him, you know, sort of the journey that is in my book. Uh, I explained to him why his character went back there because he had been through what I had been through. So a lot of that is really from my own life. And again, I will say, and that's probably goes without saying that when you want to write something good, raw, ugly, or horrifyingly embarrassing truth kind of translates because people usually find something in it that, I don't know, maybe that or I'm mentally ill. I don't know. That's where all that came from, though. I didn't really... On that particular aspect of the film, I love insane asylum films. I love One Flew Over a Cuckoo's Nest. I love the one with Angelina Jolie, where she's the girl, little girl lost or whatever. Girl Interrupted, And there's yeah. many, there's many, yeah, Girl Interrupted. There's many reflections of those projects that are in that movie. And at that point in my career, I just, I didn't care if people said that, hey, that nurse reminds me of Nurse Ratchet, because frankly, she was Nurse Ratchet, and I had just, uh, uh, what's his name, um, Eli Roth had just done um, Cabin Fever, and like every other shot of Cabin Fever was a shot from some other horror film. I was like, well, if he's getting away with it, I'm going to do it too, and I'm going to pay homage to what I like. And, there, and I think it all came together. I mean, you can't, can't really tell. We got Natasha Leone yeah. in the film, and like it's incredible. so many... Yeah. Dendry, uh, Dendry, uh, forget her last name. She's from the fighter. I mean, she's just so many good actors. That's the one thing that's good about doing a studio picture is they really will get behind you on the casting and the money of it. I mean, I, I told them like, I went in there and pitched that movie and I could do it for $500,000. And they're like, nobody could do a movie for $500,000. I was like, Oh my gosh, if you only knew, uh, and they're like, we'll give you a million and a half. And I was like, okay i wanted to hug them all you know like i just couldn't believe it and uh it was a very fun and uh, eye-opening journey as i'm sure you read if you read the book and such a great such a great fucking movie as well and yeah. what was the and one thing you don't really get into in the book that i was always curious about is the story of presenting ginger dead man to charles was that something that you had you know on your own came up with the whole idea and everything yeah. So, uh, I wanted to be on mad TV really bad and I auditioned for mad TV many times and the, and the, um, it was towards the end of my trajectory of performing and, and starving myself to be a thin actor. And I started doing that thing where you've, you've been a fat person and then you get really skinny, but then suddenly you're in the middle where it's like, you're thin, thin, but fat. So I would go to Matt TV to audition and they would always say to my agent, he's too fat, but not fat enough. Tell him to gain 60 pounds or lose 40. Like there's, he's, he's, oh, he's God. we don't know what to do with him. Oh yeah. This is, this was a monthly thing. So 
I thought, fuck this. I had written for National Lampoon. I had headlined in the National Lampoon touring company. And I was like, I'm going to get on Mad TV. I'm going to, I'm going to start out by writing for them. So I would go, this is insane. I would, this is back before 9-11 where you could pretty much walk onto any studio lot you wanted. And they were filming Mad TV at the KTLA studio. And I would write sketches and stupidly go and slide them under the writer's door with a note on there saying, I didn't know, I didn't know that that's not how it worked. I thought if I went there and there's somebody read it, they're like, Oh my God, we have to have this writer. He's great. He's, you know, he's from national lampoon. You know, it went right in the garbage, I'm sure. And now I know, I know Michael Hitchcock and I'm, I'm best friends with Mo Collins from that show. And, and Michael Hitchcock actually read my book and was like, this is a great book. He was the head writer. So I, I haven't had the opportunity to tell him this, but anyway, one of the sketches that I wrote was Ginger Dead Man. And actually one of the writers called me back and said, we, I, it's great, but you know, we actually just did something. We did the Snuggie Bear and they'll never buy this because it's so much like the Snuggie Bear. They did this, is it Snuggie? The fabric softener bear, it goes in, and kills everyone. And, and they said, it, it's so much like it, they'll never do it. And I was like, Okay. So then about three years, four years passed. I had lunch with Charlie and he said, I got to think of something really kooky. Like what is the stupidest thing you've ever thought of? Something that has a hook. And I was like, ginger dead man. He's like, you're filming it in a month. So I was like, I don't want to be the ginger dead man guy. And he's like, well, let me buy it. So I sold it to him for 500 bucks. Uh, I wrote a story that turned, you know, was like a, a, a multi-million dollar storyline that they, they took two or three ideas from. And then some other guy wrote the first one and then people liked it. And, and Charlie really got it right. The one thing that Charlie really knows about his, uh, his fans is they, they don't like it too kooky. They like it. Even if it is kooky, they like it to be presented like it's serious. They don't want you to go for the laughs, which I'm always tempted to do. So he did it and he did it in a way that they really loved it. So then he came to me and I still didn't want to do it. And I was like, uh, okay, if I can make it like mad magazine on part two, then I'll do it. Oh, you do whatever you want to do. So I did it. And, and me, me and my friends had a great, great time. There are people that like it, but I know there was a contingency of full moon viewers that they don't like it. Cause it's too kooky, even though it's, it's blatantly making fun of Charlie. I don't know if you've ever seen part two, but it's about this guy who makes low budget films and is running out of money and everyone's pissed at him. And, so it was great. And plus that one has like Nicotero, John Fulwich, Dave Dakota. It has all these cameos, Michelle Bauer from the eighties actors from there has all these cool people in it. So, so that is how we did it. And, and that's, it's still alive to this day. I won't touch it with a 10 foot. Really? You're out, a, you're out of the ginger dead man franchise. No, <laughs> not, until we, not until we do the hundred million dollar, you know, reboot. Right. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> was Arnold, it you? Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right. Was it your idea to yeah. have Busey as uh, as a ginger dead man? No, that was Charlie's. Really? And, uh, yeah. That was Charlie's idea. I, that was Charlie's idea, and it was a brilliant idea. And that—that's well, that's another one you got a hog tie to get anything out of. So uh, uh, he—he's braver than I would. I, I don't, as you, I'm sure you read with uh, my my experience in in Nashville. I don't do well with people like that. Right. You know, it's like, <laughs> right. It's like, yeah. I really a little size don't. more story in the book that uh, uh, is, is incredible. Just, uh, babe, I was raised in the carnival. There, there's, I've had I've had every everything thrown at me, including monkey shit. Like you know. 
nothing nothing phases me i'm not gonna if i'm gonna die it's not gonna be on some independent film set i don't think so uh yeah but i i yeah but anyway he he's great he's great as the voice and i end up doing the voice and john beekler ends up doing the voice it's weird uh volich is credited as doing the voice on part two but it, it was never him it was always me but i was just like i, I let them believe it was john because it's so stupid <laughs> but anyway. so i mean as we, I, I don't want to take up any more of your time dude i could talk to you all fucking night i have yeah. so many questions yeah. man i have so many questions yeah. but uh you know just taking a look into the future and you've got something that you've been sharing and talking about on social media for a while now and i'm seeing so many clips and i know you're so passionate about it, it looks so awesome is my babysitter the superhero so what's the latest yeah. with that okay so i'm so happy to tell you that uh you know i i didn't know if i was out of the business or not and i just got this 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 should be an uh, inspiration for anyone i was sitting in my mother's bed and Fresno, California. I thought I was out of the business and Bullich talked me into writing something. He said, just write something that you know. I came up with this hook. I Such an incredible movie. part of the book too, when you have that conversation yeah. and he yeah. brings yeah. you back. He brings he you back. It's fucking beautiful. Fuck, fucker. Yeah. Fucker. <laughs> uh, anyway, so anyway, uh, uh, I wrote it. It turned out good. And all my friends who I love, Mo and Alex Scooby and Jim O'Hare and and my, oh, they're all famous and they're all, they're all scratching their heads going, you know, where are you? They, they kind of basically were saying the same thing that, that Bullet said, which is you're just not making $2 million a year anymore. That doesn't mean you're out of the business. You know, it's like, I just was not knowing what to do with myself. I didn't know how to function without $2 million a year. So uh, I believe me, I've learned since then. Uh, so anyhow, uh, I, I just made this movie with no money. Like, every, like they all jumped on and said, we'll act in it. We won't charge you. I got a camera package from some guy and my parents gave me money. And then I would just tell people like, I'm making my own movie. And then somebody would just give me five grand or what they just, I just, I don't know how I raised like $50,000. And then we got this movie shot. It is taking me two and a half, almost three years in October of, uh, of putting all together. I'm happy to say it's in the final mix. There's like 600 CGI shots in it that I literally paid shot by shot to have them done. There's, it's about an old lady who's secretly like a power ranger. She flies, she does Kung Fu. The costumes are amazing, by the way. We made them them on my patio. Unbelievable. uh, Yeah. Wow. And, uh, and, uh, and it really should be a lesson to anyone that, you know, somebody was here filming the inserts for this baby oopsie thing with this doll vomiting and he's got that new camera that's like they use on friggin' um, Avengers. It's like $2,000 camera now. Like if you get the lenses, there's no reason to not make your own project. There really truly is not make something self-contained. This wasn't, this was very ambitious, which is why it's taken me forever. Let's hope and let's keep our fingers crossed that uh, I'm able to sell it. The way I look at it is if I can sell it and if I can, even though they said they do for nothing, to give pay my actors and you know give my mom and dad their 10 grand back like if i could do that and i could walk away with a few thousand bucks i would be happy i'm not expecting anything of it but i will say it turned out good and i i hope that eventually someone will watch it and say wow you did that for 50 grand that's not not too shabby so we'll see you you never know i mean you guys have both been in the business a long time the days of being discovered are over you know it just doesn't you can do all this stuff for the wrong reason and then 
the only reason you should do something is to make yourself happy, not to get discovered, not to make a million dollars. Just make yourself happy. That's the payoff. Mm, beautifully said, man. And yes. one, yeah. one, one last thing I also want to note yeah. is that fucking short you did, the lift, is phenomenal. Phenomenal. Thank you. Where can people see that? It's an amazing, it's an amazing short about a lift driver. It's perfectly topical. <laughs> it's incredibly eerie. Amazing yeah. performances. And dude. I try to think of where you can see it. Well, I keep trying to get Charlie and put it on the channel. And I think it's, it's not, I entered it in some festivals. I got in festivals and then I, I, you know, I'm, I'm so bad. Like I didn't realize like if you put it in one festival, then other festivals won't air it. And like, I, I just am not a short film person. So I made it, I made it to like kind of keep my finger in the horror world I don't know. I really don't know where you can see. That's a very good question. It, it, it did turn out good. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of it. I, the, it's so weird. You should say Tom Fitzpatrick, you know, Tom Fitzpatrick who plays the creepy old man. The story for those who don't know is about a frazzled old uh, Lyft driver who is wanting to go home. And she has this kid with her that is like, let's, let's go eat. Let's go out to eat. And she's like, I'm going to do one more ride and then we'll go home. And she picks up this very, very, um creepy unsavory fellow that wants to go somewhere and he's kind of giving them the runaround he's kind of like the you, dude who like would answer the ring the doorbell and poltergeist yes exactly like that and uh so you're pretty pretty sure he's going to kill them both uh throughout the project and then it, it it does something else in the end and uh but you know tom fitzpatrick is the old lady in insidious you know the one with the yes yeah. wow isn't that interesting that is so cool I will, I will post it. I will post a link on my um, Instagram. Uh, it's the, the William Butler on Instagram. If anybody wants to see it, you can, I'm not very, I'm not very good at this, but you could uh, click on my, on my page and I'll, I'll put the link up there. I don't know where, but I'll put somewhere. <laughs> Get it up, man. It's so yeah, great. Man. It's so great. Yeah. Well, dude, there's so many awesome things to watch that you've been doing. I mean, I encourage everybody to to subscribe to that full moon channel as well. They keep abreast of all that stuff and go and pick up this book, Tawdry Tales and Confessions from Horror's Boy Next Door. And you can get it anywhere. Anywhere books yes. are sold. And there's yeah. an ebook as well. Are you going to do an audio version? Yeah. I am. I think I'll do it in November. Like I said earlier, there's parts of it that I I'm, I'm, would probably burst into tears reading out loud or die of shame. Right. As it turns out. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, I will do it because uh, I guess I need to do it. Everyone's asking and and I, I have dogs that I need to feed. So uh, if you buy it, I will read it. If you read it, they will come. Anyway, I really appreciate right. you guys. I love your show. I'm a fan of your show. And um Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be included. Oh, Bill, man. Thank you so much for oh, doing yes. this. We love you yeah. so much. It really yeah. means a thank lot you. to yeah, us. Yeah, so we finally you, got a chance to do this, man. And we'll do it again. Yes. We'll do it again soon with all your shit coming out, man. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I want to keep supporting it in any way we can because it's so fucking thank gleefully fun. And it's done with the spirit of fun, yes. too, which I love. Yep. Everything you do has yeah. just got so much fun and passion injected into it, man. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 255. Special thanks to our guest, William Butler. Get his new book, Tawdry Tales and Confessions, from Horror's Boy Next Door everywhere now. And check out his latest projects, Miskatonic U, The Resonator, and Baby Oopsie on the Full Moon Feature streaming service now. 
production tracks for this episode provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, it is the Boo Crew saying sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! A bloody disgusting podcast network. Home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full cast storytelling. Horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.